To get your free audio gift, The Three Pillars of Achieving Your Perfect Weight Using the Mind-Body Connection, go to freefitnessaudio.com and enter your first name and email address, and we'll send that to you right away. Welcome, everyone, to episode 41 of Healthy Mind, Fit Body Podcast. This is Wes, and I have Kevin on the other line. Hey, Kev, how's it going? Hey, Wes, uh, it's going good. I'm a little bit tired. I just drove back from uh, Orange County, and but the sun was out, which is a kind of a rarity these days here in Southern California, getting the foggiest summer I've ever experienced. But It is kind of cooler, isn't it? Unseasonably. Yeah, yeah. How's things going to your end? Not too shabby. Yeah, I just had a good lunch with some uh, spinach and asparagus. Some light tuna with some garlic salsa mm. and some mixed nuts without the peanuts, mind you. Nice. We've heard some bad things about peanuts, legumes in general. And actually, this episode, we're finishing up the second half of the interview we did with Rob Wolf, and we're leading into it with the legumes issue. That's right. And how's your non dairy uh, stint going? Well, I have not finished off my whey protein powder yet, so okay. until I do, I will not be going full-on paleo, but probably in the next week or two. We'll see how nice. it goes. But we can uh, chew on some of that after the show. Yep. So yeah, here's the second part. Enjoy. So moving on to legumes, beans and peas and so forth, what's your stance on those? Um, they also have some properties that aren't so good for us. Is that correct? Yet, you know, in the way I handled it in the book, I introduced grains and looked at the anti-nutrient, gut-irritating, protease-inhibiting elements of grains. And then I just did a side box and I said, legumes do essentially the same thing. And there's different susceptibility with different people. And so it's that thing again where I, I just recommend that people pull them out of the rotation, reintroduce them occasionally. It's another food that personally I would have in a limited rotation. Mm-hmm. You know, like peanuts taste delicious. Peanut butter is amazing. Um, the best almond butter doesn't even hold a candle to the worst peanut butter <laughs> ever, you know? So when I talk about this stuff, I think people get this sense that I'm like some sort of monk and I, I don't like food and stuff like that. Nothing could be further from the truth. But peanuts, peanut oil, uh, derivatives of therein have a super high atherogenic potential. So they tend to cause atherosclerotic plaques because of the lectin content, which is gut irritating and immune irritating. So they're very, very problematic. They're very, very uh, allergenic. So that's where I, I drop the whole legume, peanuts, all that stuff into the, the same kind of category. Now, is that a correlational research there? Or is there actual causal evidence for that being the case? Oh, there's good causal evidence, both human and animal. Yeah, the tons. I'd like to see those studies because I'm a big fan of peanut butter. I've always tried to avoid you know, the potential for the aflatoxin issue. And I think Valencia peanuts have the least amount of that. But uh, I know they have more polyunsaturated fat in them than, say, your macadamia nuts and almonds and so forth. But yeah, if they contribute to atherosclerosis, that's not good. My blood readings have been stellar, though. So how would you explain that? Um, you know, it's all, a, it's all a gamble. Everybody's yeah. got an Uncle Fred who drank you know, Jack Daniels all day and smoked and had a chew and chased women until he was 85. Exactly. So these are just generalities that we can draw from and then make an informed choice about how we want to go about our business, you know? And so for some people, this is also a thing where it gets down to like a a cost benefit analysis. If your son rises and sets with peanut butter (laughs) because you love it 
and you read some studies and it's like, okay, it's got a high atherogenic potential, but otherwise every element of your diet is wired in. You sleep well, you, you get plenty of sunlight. So you have vitamin D, you exercise a good amount, but not so much that you create systemic inflammation. You're a nice person. So you're not creating stress induced cortisol because you're a jerk and you just love peanut butter, then it's probably a worthwhile trade-off. But if you roll into my gym and you've got some systemic inflammation and something I would suspect to be maybe some autoimmunity or just some inflammatory problems, I'm going to lean on you like crazy to cut that stuff out of the rotation. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I know that they used a uh, variation of peanut butter, like this mixture called plumpy nut in these third world countries to get these emaciated kids back to normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, previously, they'd been giving them like rice, you know, big bags of rice and stuff like that. But then somebody scratched their head and said, hey, maybe we should give them some fat in their diet. Yeah. <laughs> Shocker. And so they distributed this plumpy nut and these kids just flourished on it. Now, of course, that's yeah. an extreme situation where they wouldn't really worry about atherosclerosis because they're really on the edge of survival. So Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the, just as a quick diversionary thing. The highest rates of celiac that occur on the planet are in these uh, uh, refugee situations where we ship these people grains. Uh, yeah. So all that they're eating is essentially our government-subsidized wheat. And uh, these kids with the distended bellies and kwashiorkor and all that, it's largely an outgrowth of a gut irritation induced by a massive grain feeding. Yeah. Amazing. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my solution to the peanut butter problem is uh, almond butter. I actually like it better. And if you try the almond butter with sea salt from Trader Joe's, I swear you'll never go back to peanut butter. It's it's amazing. Uh, uh, <laughs> I've, ne- I've never met an almond butter that held a candle to peanut butter. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. pull out some scientific studies here. Yeah, Kev, I found the one they've got at Trader Joe's. It's like twice as expensive as the regular peanut butter, but it has the roasted flax seeds in it. Yeah, uh, it's pretty tremendous. It's good. It's good. I, I, I'll give you that. <laughs> so taking a step back to uh, like take an average non-athletic person that needs to lose, say, 50 pounds and they're working eight to 10 hours a day, have a couple kids. Can you give us a breakdown of what you would focus on from the most important thing to maybe what may be a little too technical to start off with? Uh, you know, it kind of depends on the person as to where their technical fall off is. But I try to get a moving towards paleo. And that can be a pretty wide variation. You know, if the person is drinking two liters of soda a day, that's a huge intervention. So, you know, probably the first thing is uh, no liquid calories. And then even non-calorie liquid drinks like a diet soda and stuff like that, the devil fat loss. So I just try to get people like coffee, tea, water, that's it. That's what you consume fluid-wise. And then moving anything that looks like, you know, a hunk of protein, vegetables, good fats, then sleep is absolutely critical, which, you know, folks, obviously they get real busy. They have kids, they have all kinds of life stressors and stuff like that. But people also tend to make choices about staying up and farting around on the internet, watching TV. And if they will make a choice to sleep, then they're going to have a huge improvement in their ability to lose fat reduce inflammation and just generally feel better. And then within this whole overarching scene, people need to make their home pristine with regards to the the type of foods on hand. If you have junk foods, and the thing is, is that people will make excuses about the kids. Oh, the kids will throw a fit or whatever. The kids don't need to be eating that crap either. So if if you want to affect change for you and your family, maybe you need to take some responsibility for the whole scene 
and actually try to enact some change that's healthy for everybody. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I know it's just this preposterous assumption that parents actually tell their kids what the kids should do and that the kids actually do it. And there's ramifications to their behavior and our behavior. I know that that's like not very in vogue, but the people that we see do this, they succeed. The people who do not do this fail. And so it's as simple as that. And uh, we have tons and tons of examples of this. And so like people need to get in and make the home per scene. And this isn't to say that you never have treats anymore. Like if little Jimmy goes over to his friend's house that he can't have pizza, just control what you can control. And that's doing 95% of the good. And then if they go out with friends or they're at school and they get snacks, you can't control that. Don't freak out. Don't give the kids eating disorders or anything. But our trainers have largely done exactly this. And and all of the, pretty much all the trainers we have now that they started off being fairly overweight, several of them have kids and they just finally got sick of battling the junk food scene, the goldfish crackers and, you know, just all the stuff like that. So they gutted the house. They always have jerky, nuts, fruit. A couple of them have like string cheese around, which if I'm going to argue one way or the other, like string cheese, okay, way better than goldfish, you know, in my opinion. And so that's what they do. And these people succeed. And so there's nothing technical about any of that. Right. You know, it's like make your meals focus around protein, veggies, and fat, get some sleep, get a little bit of exercise, just like go for a walk and uh, don't allow your house to have any crap food in it because you, you will fail. You don't lay in bed thinking about pork loin and spare ribs. You think about the little Debbie snack cakes that are in the pantry. Exactly. And so that's what you get up in the middle of the night and go eat. So you get that stuff out of there. Um, you change what the kids are eating and they'll have a three day peasant uprising where their head spins and it's like the exorcist and (laughs) then they'll adapt and they'll be okay. And then you as a family are actually moving forward in a healthful manner. You've taken control of the household and have some expectations for the kids to actually uh, be healthy and eat well. And then you've demonstrated that you can do this and the kids can do this. It's an amazing thing. Yeah, we focus a lot on the psychology behind all this, and it seems that there is that sort of leniency versus authoritarianism that parents indulge in, rather than just using rationality and saying, hey, this is the healthy way to eat, these are the healthy foods to eat, and this is the context we're going to live in so that we can all be healthy and we can have win-win situations. You know, honestly, I yeah, for me, like, I don't even know, so, you know, maybe you get into a discussion about it, but if all the food in the house changes... Mm-hmm. It's neither authoritarian nor uh, love and logic. You know, it's like, okay, we have apples, oranges, jerky, and nuts. When you're hungry, you'll eat it. So there's nothing authoritarian about it. And there's nothing that gets this like hand-wringing, like, oh, gee whiz, the kids and my inner child and their inner child, and they need spankings. And it's just, this is the food, and that's what's to eat, and go play. Yeah, I was just referring to the battles that parents engage in with their kids because they stock the house with all this bad food and then they try to ration it and say, no, you can only have three cookies today. Things like that are just complete nonsense. So you've got to put them in a context that's actually healthy for them and then they can uh, you know, adjust to it just fine and they don't have to deal with that stuff. Yeah, they don't need to battle. However, then you run into the problem of them sending them to schools that aid and abet the bad eating lifestyle and uh, that's a whole other issue. Yeah. And that's where I I just, you know, control what you can control. But, you know, if folks want to succeed with this, in my opinion, they'll just gut the house, provide good options, and then that's it. Those are the options. There was a time, I remember when I was growing up, 
you had breakfast, lunch, dinner, and my mom had some fruit on the table for snacks. I was it, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, and uh, if we didn't eat when breakfast was out, we didn't eat, you know, and it's like, well, I made breakfast when you weren't hungry. And so that was that. And today people act like that is, is like child abuse or something, but it's, <laughs> Yeah, they have to come to terms with the intermittent fasting idea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they need to come to terms with the fact that they're a parent and they need to kind of steer the boat a little bit and just sack up and uh, make some choices that in the short run may be a little bit challenging, but in the long run actually creates fewer problems and more accountability for both themselves and the kids. Yeah, and I think personal accountability is a big factor because they really have to work on themselves before they can actually help anyone else. And obviously... That is a work in progress for many people. What do you think yeah. about the food diaries or keeping a food journal of some sort? People try to you know, use this meticulous method of making sure they're eating the right stuff at the right time, the right calories and all that. Do you think that's a lot of uh, OCD stuff? You know, I know that there are some people out there that benefit from it, but it's a small percentage. And like you said, obviously, you've worked with folks a lot. The folks who like to journal and food diary, they are just usually going, they can be pushed over the edge into that food OCD scenario really, really easily. Um, Sometimes I will simply, like if I'm just starting to work with someone, I will have them write down or email me a day's food. Mm -hmm. And I like to see just like a general kind of shotgun. I had chicken apple sausage and, you know, an orange for breakfast and lunch with a Salad with uh, grilled salmon and dinner with some pork spare ribs with uh, a glass of wine and some grilled asparagus. Making me hungry over here, Rob. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And and uh, that's pretty good for me. I don't like the weighing and the measuring and everything. Even we've been working with the fitness competitors and we can get them instinctually eating. Like we will weigh and measure their food for a time, but we will get them eyeballing their food such that they don't even need to weigh measure and we'll get them down into the low single digit body fat level. Mm -hmm. So the journaling, I just like folks to just like, you know, how hard is it? Hunk of protein, lots of vegetables, a little bit of good fat. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and if you can't wrap your mind around that, then maybe we've got some way deeper problems (laughs) that go completely beyond my skill set and frankly, my interest in addressing and patience, probably. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a therapist, but I will cheer and rah-rah you to the end of the world if we're we're working together. But I, at some point, like, and I know these food issues can be kind of deep, but also people choose, make a choice mm-hmm. to either make it more complex or less complex. Yes. And if you make it more complex and it makes it that much more challenging for you to succeed in this, and when people start heading down that OCD route then they're setting themselves up for failure, in my opinion. Some people, I guess, are appropriate on the food journaling thing. We have a couple of trainers who really love hand-holding some of their clients, and they do the food journaling more. The funny thing is, though, is that they are elbow deep in people who are borderline kind of food OCD. You know, they've got a little bit of food wackiness going on, so they just kind of grow and perpetuate that whole scene. But then, you know, the clients are paying and they're making progress, but it just feels like a lot more work. Yeah, we, we were having a good time. Uh, we read your article on uh, Tom Venuto, and mm-hmm. he, he yes. apparently subscribed to the uh, food journaling and calorie counting and you know being completely OCD about all this stuff. And it just sets people up for failure. Yeah, I was, I was cheering you on in your critique of that stuff, Rob. Yeah. Um, it, you know, and so many of these people, guys like him, where the information that goes out, like 
granted, the dude's in good shape, whether it's pharmaceutical or not pharmaceutical, hat tip to him. He's done great with that. But then you get this image of success and then you send a message that dooms people to failure. It's built around supplements. It's built around food journaling. It doesn't work. Then when people fail, they feel horrible. And then they're, they're in this repetition cycle. And honestly, like when you asked early on, how did I become the paleo guy? I think the reason why I've had the success I've had is because I just implore people try this for 30 days and then tell me what your experience was. And I don't sell supplements. I don't push shakes. There's none of that BS around it. It's actually stuff that works, but it requires a little bit of effort and and a little bit of sacrifice, but it actually gets results. Mm -hmm. And then people are like, oh my God, this is amazing. And it's easy. And and I like it. And yeah, that's, Oh man, someday Tom's going to jump me in an airport or something. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have your back, Rob. No worries, man. Yeah. Perfect. Cool. Cool. Well, speaking of results, uh, how do you, you know, what sort of strategies do you have to avoid the confirmation and selection biases that can come from seeing all this positive anecdotal evidence? Because in my background in psychotherapy, every therapist claims that their particular modality or uh, therapeutic technique works great, you know, because you just see all the results in the clients. They're all doing well, but that's a selective sample, right? And there's some confirmation bias that can happen there too. So I guess it's a matter of controlling for the variables and looking at the evidence, right? Well, it's a really good question. And I, I guess from where I am with most of this stuff, since I'm mainly a coach and you know, 90% coach, 10% scientist, I, I would say at this point, I'm just mainly looking at outcome-based results. And so there probably is some selection bias. Like folks have pointed that out on, on my blog, that there may be people who navigate there, try it, it doesn't work so well for them and then they, they navigate someplace else and then they glom on to what does work for them. So it's a really interesting question, but I don't know that I really give it all that much thought. And part of it, because I do throw out there, give it a shot, try it. If it works, great. If it doesn't, keep tinkering. Look mm-hmm. for something else, you know, try to find something else. But then the caveat to that that I'd say um, – I don't see people not do well from a focus on quality food. The removal of grains, legumes, and dairy seems to be like this universality and with very little wiggle room in that. And then we go to like the carbohydrate content of their diet. We just titrate that in based on what their needs are. Some people do better on a little more carbs. Some people do better on fewer carbs. For the paleo concept, it's very carb agnostic. Like, let's just find where your optimum, you know, uh, operating parameters are and, and then play with that. But the basis of food quality is still there. So what I find, and then again, it's observational. So you're very, very true that there could be some, you know, I could be blinding myself to this. There could be uh, vast swaths of people who are not succeeding with this approach. But the, a very, very interesting thing, it, it just popped in my head here. Professor Cordain's book sold pretty well. The the Paleo Diet sold pretty well. It was released in 2001. Sold pretty well, not spectacular, and then it kind of went into obscurity. His book is top 30 on Amazon and Barnes & Noble now, and it is continuing to climb. It went up, it went down, and then it had years of obscurity, and now this thing is selling better than it's ever sold before, and it's looking like it's going to be one of the best-selling health and diet books that have ever been written. And my question to that is why? It's pretty amazing. It's very amazing. And in one of the talks that I give, I point out a scenario that Professor Cordain 
related to me in a, a discussion that we had, and it, it basically goes like one of these two scenarios. Scenario one, you introduce a concept to people, which kind of sort of works, but not really. And so people don't really get success. And so that meme, that concept isn't sticky. It doesn't perpetuate. It doesn't live. It doesn't go on. So that concept dies. And I would actually kind of the zone diet into this, you know, this idea of 40, 30, 30 and all that sort of stuff. It's an interesting idea, but it just doesn't work. It doesn't work well enough for people to do it enough for it to continue and perpetuate. On that note, I just had a little thought about when he says that you need a certain amount of carbohydrates to run your nervous system and no more, basically. What is he basing that on? Uh, fantasy. <laughs> Short <laughs> yes. answer is fantasy. That's interesting. But, you know, then back to this paleo diet thing, though, if in human systems the signal or the message is accurate and helpful and beneficial, mm-hmm. then people will succeed and success breeds success and this idea will go on and perpetuate. And this is what we're seeing with the paleo diet. Like people try it, they put on this this sweater and it fits or they're able to modify it to make it fit for them in a very easy streamlined fashion because – it's like, do you need a little more carb? Do you need a less carb? Do you need a little more fat, a little less fat, a little more protein, a little less protein? Very easy tweaks to enact these changes. The results are stunning. And so this is where the anecdotal evidence for the paleo, it, it is anecdotal, but it's stunning anecdotal. Yeah, you don't necessarily need to, uh, if you're going to jump out of an airplane, it helps to have a parachute. You don't need to perform a controlled study about that one, do you? Exactly, exactly. And so to some degree, I, I find a really interesting market-based confirmation for this in this signal, the paleo diet shot out there to the world back in 2001, kind of went down to a very low simmer at best, and now has reached a rolling boil because it works. And it works better than anything else that people have played with. I love the fact that we have this grassroots movement, people that go to the internet and find information and you know, do their own research, and they're basically dragging the nutrition and medical industry, kicking and screaming into a more rational, healthy way of living. Yeah. 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 You know, you can't, you will not enact change from the top down. Yeah. And so the, this grassroots movement is forcing the change because of the, the change in the economics. Like this paleo primal concept is wielding a big enough economic hammer now that you're not going to be able to deny or, or uh, resist this stuff. And it's interesting, like uh, my wife, Nikki, and I just got life insurance and we received the best quote possible out of the office in Chico, New York life. I'm 38 years old. My blood lipids were stellar. You know, interesting thing. We had to do a telephone interview with this whole thing. And I told the people, I said, I'm heavy by body mass index because I lift weights. If you guys yeah. penalize me for that, I will kill you. You know, it's like, <laughs> I, I, I will not go with you. So you need to take that into consideration. And they did. So nice. I communicated with them. So they factored that in. They said, okay, athletic, you know, healthy body composition, low body fat. My blood pressure was great. My blood lipids were great. It is not possible to get a lower insurance rate than what we got. There's tens of thousands of people that are starting to walk around with blood lipids and uh, inflammatory panels that look like that. Mm -hmm. Some insurance company is going to stick its ears forward and say, hey, I ought to offer particularly juicy rates to these people. And and you fall under these parameters. And we're not really interested in insuring anybody who doesn't have 
numbers like this. And I'm not sure where the legality of that falls, but you know, there, there's some really interesting opportunities from a social engineering standpoint that is very decentralized. It's very libertarian and it's very, very exciting. There you go. We've solved the healthcare crisis all in this podcast. Absolutely. It's kind of trite to say, but we literally could. Yeah. We could save our own bacon. We could bypass all the fruitcakes that are representing us in government <laughs> and like save a ton of money for us, avert what is looking like an economic. I'll just comment on that really quickly, but we just received a information from our accountant about what we are going to need to do to keep our staff within the parameters of this healthcare reform. And it's really scary. It is frankly wow. really, really scary what it's going to do economically. And there's absolutely no reason for it. We all yeah. collectively could change this. Yeah. Yeah. I've got two words for everybody. Don't comply. Don't comply. You know, <laughs> do, do what's sensible. Yeah. Be responsible. Yep. So let's wrap this up with a final question and probably the most important question here. And that's on caffeine and alcohol, our two favorite substances as Americans. <laughs> Uppers and downers. Uppers and downers, yeah. How, how paleo are these two? I don't know that they're really paleo at all, but, you know, the this is where, like, for me, I like to drag in, you know, paleo is helpful from a perspective of this will help me make some good choices. Caffeine, I like. It makes me feel good. It makes me happy. Too much can go too far. Uh, kind of the same deal with alcohol. My rule of thumb on alcohol is drink enough to optimize your sex life, but not so much that it is deleterious to your performance, health, and longevity. So, <laughs> okay. I don't know how scientific that is, yeah. but it's uh, that's, yeah. that's my rule of thumb with it. Sounds good to me. So, so you you're big... are like, you are an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you're a big fan of uh, the espressos, right? But you were able yeah. to cut down a little bit? Shift them more towards the espresso. Um, if you like green tea or black tea, you know, probably uh, mixing that stuff up is a good idea because each one of them brings different antioxidants, different toxins, in fact. And so diversifying that stuff is a smart idea, I think. Yeah. Everything in moderation and diversify, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Makes and then sense. like on the booze side, I recommend uh, clear alcohol. We have this thing called the NorCal Margarita, which is a couple of shots of tequila, preferably gold, juice of one lime splash of soda water and uh, that's pretty good it's actually surprisingly yummy it's good i tried it and i don't even miss the sugar that margaritas have man people love it and it's uh, by far the most popular recipe we've ever put out yeah definitely well it looks like wes is gone so we probably can just kind of wrap it up at this point cool so yeah well this has been awesome really fun and informative and again it's robwolf.com r-o-b-b wolf like the animal.com and if anyone out there is into this information definitely check out his podcast because i i'm an addict now I'm, I'm like the what the 10th listener i guess it possibly i don't know double digits uh, that's a little shaky there so <laughs> okay we'll go with that but yeah thanks so much for coming on taking the time thank you kevin it is great i really enjoyed it all right well have a great day up in Chico. awesome take and, care uh, yeah we'll be in touch bye-bye Okay, that was part two of the interview with Rob Wolf, and that was an exciting one, wasn't it? Yes, it was, and I held in there till the very end, and then my battery died on my computer, so... Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I was disconnected at the time, and I lost my connection, Yeah, but uh, it was just the last few minutes. I listened to uh, the show afterwards, obviously, and pretty interesting ideas. This paleo lifestyle is definitely a little more strict than everyone's used to, isn't it? Yeah, and, and we talked about this earlier, but it's like this is 
the right way to eat. I mean, most of this stuff, as far as what we can tell and the research that we've done, it's spot on. You know, it's really well researched. Um, but at the same time, it's not like everyone needs to go from, you know, eating fast food and pasta and drinking sodas and stuff to strict paleo. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, there's definitely some stages that can be taken in between where if you're simply cutting out carbs, you're going to go a huge long way to benefiting your health. Whereas some of the stuff, it's such minutia compared to the big picture. And that's kind of what we were going towards with this second part, too. Yeah, I think that, you know, we've talked about this a bit after our experiences and reading about paleo. And one thing for sure, it's not bad for you. That's one thing you can say about it. <laughs> yeah. There is nothing really wrong with going the paleo lifestyle. Yeah. Whereas if you look at all the other ways of eating in modern society, there are, you know, various things that can be problematic. And you hear people say in frustration all the time, well, now that's bad for me. Now that causes cancer. Everything causes cancer. You know, what yeah. am I supposed to eat now? Saliva in large quantities will cause death, right? (laughs) Exactly. So it's just about doing things that are sensible and picking and choosing your battles here. And I think that our book, Healthy Mind Fit Body, is structured to get you onto that healthy lifestyle in a way that is amenable to your present lifestyle. You know, you just have to change some things and refocus your energy and prioritize your values differently, as well as delve into your psychology about how you've been eating in the past, how you relate to food, how you relate to exercise and the people in your social system, in your family and friends and so forth, how they relate to you as you make those changes. I mean, those are all really important things to focus on. And that's what the book does. It lays that foundation to do that. And we don't get into the paleo stuff so strictly, like we've been talking about on these last few interviews. But I think there is a general tendency to say, yeah, this is something that needs to be looked at. Um, I did research some of the peanut notions, the idea that it's atherosclerotic. Yeah. Because that really raised an eyebrow with me. Uh, I don't want to be eating anything that promotes heart disease or uh, atherosclerosis. Right. But all I could really find was a bunch of studies they did with rabbits in relation to peanut oil Hmm. causing hardening of the arteries or plaque buildup. I couldn't find anything in relation to humans. So maybe they're trying to, um, you know, compare the issue to humans, the results of this research to humans. Yeah. It goes in line with the mouse studies that they do. You know, they find all kinds of bad things wrong with certain types of foods. And then they say, oh, humans shouldn't eat it either. Right. As if we're the same. I always was more concerned, like I said on the show, with the aflatoxin, this uh, toxic byproduct of the mold that can grow on peanuts and corn and some other um, yeah. foodstuffs. But uh, they test for that and the production runs with the peanut yeah. butter and so forth. But in any event, you cannot go wrong by getting rid of legumes, you know, getting them out of your rotation, as Rob Wolf would say. No, and I'd actually do better with almond butter. Peanut butter just does, I used to eat a lot of it and I didn't have any problems with it. But now if I eat peanut butter, I can just tell like my stomach starts to growl and it just, I just don't feel as good. So, I mean, I like almond butter. I know that Rob Wolf and some of the paleo people are down on eating a lot of nuts. And um, I haven't done all the research on that, but the reason that they say that the nuts, you know, eating a lot of nuts is bad is because you get too many omega-6s, omega-6 fatty acids, and then your ratio of omega-6 to omega-3s is going to be too high. And isn't there also an issue with uh, lectins and the protease inhibitors? We're getting into the biochemistry nitty-gritty, of course. Yeah, which is good. But it kind of conflicts with the general evidence, the epidemiological evidence, that shows that nuts are providers of antioxidants. 
Yeah. So you've got some counterbalancing evidence with that stuff. And I think, again, it gets back to moderation. Don't be eating bushels of anything because uh, your body is best adapted to a variation of things and uh, occasionally intermittently fasting, right? Yeah, exactly. They have intermittent fasting. And we've talked about this before on the show, but even intermittently eating a high-carb meal is not a bad idea because it gives you that feeling again of like, I don't want this. Because if you're going low carb for a while and then you have, um, let's say some pasta or some pizza or something, you're going to feel it. I mean, it's not going to feel good. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that little reminder is a good idea. Yeah. A little wake up call after you down a pizza and a case of beer. (laughs) And a case of beer probably wouldn't improve your sex life. I wouldn't imagine. Yeah. I say just, you know, don't worry about that, but just uh, as long as you keep your job. Keep your job. Yeah, so that should be the, the cutoff point. Get a haircut too, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and that was sarcasm, by the way. We got a couple of comments on iTunes. People were saying that uh, they thought we were being a little bit too sarcastic or they didn't understand our humor or something. So we're going to have to start calling it out every time. Sarcasm. So, yeah. Hold up a big S, I guess. Well, it's not a video podcast, so I guess yeah. we'll have to improvise. But uh, yeah, I also like this point that you know, parents should take responsibility. And if you're not a parent, if you're just a, an individual that's concerned about health and wellness and uh, good nutrition, to stock your house, your refrigerator, your cabinets, all that stuff with good food rather than bad food. Good idea. And that's going to be half the battle for you. Yeah. And you're eliminating all the temptations. So it's a lot easier to stick with the healthy stuff if you don't have the bad stuff in your house. And that's pretty simple and straightforward. Mm-hmm. But back to, you were talking about the book. And so starting on July 1st, we had a little slowdown in our Healthy Mind, Fit Body book sales. Mm -hmm. And I thought I'd just bring this up on the podcast because whenever something like that happens, like I run a couple of websites and something happens like that where you see just a drop off in sales, somebody's telling you something. I mean, your audience is telling you something, right? So we're just wondering what it is. Like what's the cause of, you know, nobody's buying the book. Or just a few people, relatively speaking, right? Right. Only a few sales. So we're just putting it out there. We want to get as much feedback as possible and give you, the audience, whatever you're looking for. So um, if you could send us an email and let us know, like, what is it you're looking for in, in a book like that? And what would stop you from buying it? Are there any additional things that you'd like being offered? Because there's a whole wealth of information out there and there are lots of ways to present it. So it's good to know what uh, people's preferences are. Right. And the website, the URL is it's just healthymindfitbody.com and you add slash HMFB. Mm-hmm. HMFB, like Healthy Mind Fit Body. And if you're new to the show, we've been around for uh, almost a year now. Yeah. You can go to freefitnessaudio.com and download that free audio that gives an overview of the three pillars to achieving your perfect weight through the mind body connection and uh, get an idea of what we're talking about here. Yep. And if you like this show and you like what you're hearing, uh, please give us an iTunes review. We'll have the link in the show notes. So you just go to the website, healthymindfitbody.com and click on the iTunes link and you can enter in a rating and review. Yeah, that'll be much appreciated. Yeah. All right. I think that wraps this one up. I'm not sure what we got planned for next week, but I'm sure we'll... Uh, Cook something up. We've got a lot of comments and questions to go through. That's for sure from listeners. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe we'll just do a show where it's all answering questions. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you next week.